0: As so we go to prayer, you can be seated if you want. You can remain standing if you prefer. But I do want to take a moment, as Kathy was reading that passage from Acts earlier, uh, the, the, the final line of Acts four thirteen really sort of struck me as, as appropriate and uh, and relevant for us, as, as should always be, but perhaps particularly this morning when it said, let's just, as we bow our heads together, just not looking up here, not looking around, but just sort of doing that as an act of centering our thoughts and our hearts and our minds on Christ. That final line of Acts 4.13 said this, that the people around in Jerusalem who were listening to Peter and John, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And I guess the thought that really kind of settled on my heart is, why would that only be true then and not today? Why can't that be true today, that when people see and observe our lives as believers, if the Holy Spirit's really living within us, if Jesus Christ has truly redeemed us, why cannot men and women and children look at us and, and recognize, even if they don't know his name, that, that even so, that we had been with Jesus? You know, we realize that here this morning we are, we come together in the name of Jesus, people redeemed by Jesus. People who believe with all our heart in Jesus. And, and we, we say it all the time. We claim the promise that we're two or three are gathered in his name, that he'll do what he said. He'll be there among us. So why would people not be able to say of us, we recognize them as having been with Jesus as a result of this hour together? And so here's where I'm going with that. You know, there's really two parts of that equation for that to be so. One is Jesus to be faithful to his promise. I'm pretty confident he's going to do that today. That he will come to meet with us, that in his grace and his mercy and his kindness, he'll meet with us as he promised to do. But to be recognized as having met with Jesus, of course, every relationship, there's a reciprocal nature. There's a response to it. And, and so really the bottom line question, it's the same question we always ask, is, is where are our hearts in relation to that this morning? Are our hearts open to Jesus? Are our spirits yielded to Jesus Is there anything in the way that might keep us from meeting with Jesus? Because I really believe, if we believe God's word's true, then it's possible that as we walk out of this place and back into our lives, that people can can recognize us as having been with Jesus, and and that'll make a difference. That'll be a witness in and of itself. And so, before I pray, just in in silence for a moment, and I'm going to ask just that we would pray silently, whispered prayers at the most, just say, Lord, just examine my heart. Where do I need to yield to Jesus Where do I need to open myself? What am I holding back from Jesus? Lord, I want to meet this morning, not just with my church family, I want to meet with Jesus. Maybe use the words of that song from a moment ago, we bow our hearts. I bow my heart, I bend my knee, O spirit, come make me humble. I turn my eyes from evil things, O Lord, I cast down my idols. Give me clean hands. Give me a pure heart. Let me be among the generation that seeks your face, O God. What do you need to deal with him just in this moment? Heavenly Father, we believe you are the great God of eternity. You're the great God of creation. You're the Lord of of all the nations. You're Lord of the earth, Father, you are above all, you are over all, you are supreme, you are limitless in your power and your knowledge and your authority, and yet your word makes it so clear that at the same time, in your grace, you come and and meet with and deal with us. Father, your word makes it clear we celebrate the message this morning that you loved us enough to give us your son. We don't understand that, there is no explanation for it other than that's who you are. That you are love, and in this way your love was manifested toward us. That you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, as a sacrifice for our sins. Father, we are nothing this morning except recipients of grace. The only reason we're here is because of your grace. The only reason, Father, we're alive today is because of your grace. The only reason we have hope is because of the grace that's found at the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. We celebrate those things. We worship you for those things and then, Father, like, like children who are learning to trust their Heavenly Father, sons and daughters of the Most High, we come back to you today and say, Lord, once again, teach us, lead us, meet with us, and speak to us. Father, sometimes when you speak to us, it's words of great comfort. Father, sometimes, however, when you speak to us, it's words of great conviction. Sometimes that conviction brings pain and sorrow. But, Lord, we know there's a sorrow that leads to repentance Father, there's a a dealing in in our heart that you do that that leads us to to fresh places of of new hope and and cleansing and and redemption, and Father, we thank you for all your many gifts. Father, we've sung a lot of songs, and, and now we're about to hear a lot of words, but in and through it all, Father, really the only aim is to see and to meet with and to worship Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would deal with each of our hearts, my own included, in the remainder of this time that we have together, that when we leave here we might truly be people of whom it could be said uh, they look like they've been with Jesus. They talk like they have been with Jesus. They love like they have been with Jesus. Father, no sermon can make that happen. No worship songs and reading of scripture can bring that about. That can only be Be made real. It can only happen when you and your grace send your Holy Spirit to work among us. And we invite and even plead you to send your Holy Spirit in that way right now to be our teacher. Father, to come and guide us in the truth of your word because your word is truth and there's nothing else like it. To come and guard us. Be our protector, Lord. Guard us from error, confusion, misunderstanding, division, Father, because there's all sorts of different ways we can be distracted and led astray. Father, we ask your spirit to come be our deliverer, Father, to deliver us from proud hearts and apathetic hearts and arrogant hearts and broken hearts, deal with it, sweep it all away so that in these moments together we might see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning in the preaching of your word. May we see Jesus only this morning in the preaching of your word. And when we leave in a little while, Father, let us leave rejoicing because for a few sweet minutes together, we got to sit at the feet of the one who loved us enough to lay his life down for us and then take it up again in victory. Father, we are yours. We celebrate that fact. Speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Let's take a moment just as we uh, transition here. We can dismiss boys and girls for Children's Church. If you've got the kiddos in that five-year-old, to second grade, Span, They can make their way out of the sanctuary. And I want to invite the rest of you, uh, say good morning to you, and invite you to take your Bible out and turn with me in it to Psalm 115. I want you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 115, and we're going to read the passage right away, so find your way there quickly. If you would, if you were not here last week and you have no idea why we're in Psalm 115, just play along for a couple of minutes and I'll try to help you catch up uh, as we begin. And you can see what we're doing and and where we're going because it may not be at all what you expected if you have been absent from among us for the last couple of Sundays. Uh, I want to begin with the reading of God's word, one of these beautiful psalms of worship and adoration contained in God's word, one where the words of it, at least some of the words of it, may be familiar to you. Others of you, it may be new entirely, but that's okay. God's going to use it, I believe, if our hearts are open and our spirits are humble uh, to uh, to hear not what I have to say, but what he wants to say to us in it and through it this morning. So there's 18 verses. I want to read it in its entirety, and then, of course, as always, we'll go back and walk through it together. But Psalm 115, we don't know who wrote it. We don't know for sure when it was written or why, but we do know that this... Is according to the word of God what it says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nations say, Where now is their God? Our God is in the heavens, He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is your help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he's given to the sons of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But as for us, we will bless the Lord. From this time forth and forever, say that last line together with me, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Last Sunday, for those of you who are here, this is reminder and review. For those of you who are not, this is your five minutes to play catch up. So you know exactly where we are and where it is that we are headed. But last Sunday morning, I shared with you Some things that God had impressed on my heart a couple of weeks ago when my wife and I attended what was called the National Renewal Conference of the 6-4 Fellowship. A group of pastors that I belong to spent several days together in God's word and worship and prayer out in Denver. And and in that time, as I said, God dealt with my heart in some specific ways and, and impressed some things on me. Uh, that compelled me when I got back home. In fact, the compelling began while I was still there to say that when we got back and got back to the Sunday morning ministry of God's word that it was time to hit the pause button on our study of Thessalonians. I think we'll get back there someday. I don't really know for sure. I'm ready when the time comes. However, to, to push the pause button, and, and as I prayed that through and, 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 and consulted with our elders and made sure they were okay with it, I wanted to zero in really for last Sunday, this Sunday, and perhaps several more weeks to come on the biblical theme of revival. The theme of revival, if you want one word to to, to summarize what we're talking about here and what we will be talking about this morning, that's your word. And while I certainly am not going to take the time to rehash everything from last week, if you want to know it all, you can go back and listen to it and, and catch up in that way. But I do believe that in order to move forward, there are a few key things we need to step back and to review. Because flowing from the scene in Acts chapter 2, last Sunday we looked at the scene uh, that we we know as the the day of Pentecost at the beginning of Acts chapter 2 where it says the the Holy Spirit came as Jesus promised that he would and descended upon his disciples and some others in the upper room. It says the Holy Spirit descended upon them, Acts 2 says, like a mighty rushing wind. And, and then empowered them for service and sent them out into the world to, to preach the gospel and win people to Christ. We looked at that scene. We looked at verses and passages in and, and near and around it. And, and here is a summary of last Sunday what we discovered. There's going to be a lot of words and I'm going to move fast. Do your best and we'll move forward through it. Here's what we discovered first of all. I told you that revival, there's perhaps many ways you could define what biblical, true biblical revival is. This is the definition I've developed. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. It's the best I could do. But revival is the following. It is an extraordinary, that word is important, an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit, awakening the church like never before to the majesty of the Lord, to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, to the power of the gospel through which the awakening has a purpose, And that is as follows, through which believers are transformed, unbelievers are saved, and society is reformed to the glory of God. And while that's a lot of words, that's a great big mouthful that it's a lot to write down and it's a, a whole lot to remember, I said to you and hopefully or I believe you would probably agree when I say we've never seen that happen in our lifetimes before. That has not happened at least where we live for several lifetimes, several generations. But I think you might also agree with me when I say we need that like never before. God's people need that like never before. And, and I also shared with you really the, the thought, the statement that I heard a couple of weeks ago that really sort of pivoted me in this direction and I believe it was again what God wanted me to do. I shared with you the statement made by my friend Daniel Henderson, who said, We don't know when, and he's right, we don't know when the, the mighty rushing wind of the Holy Spirit might blow this way again. We don't know if, and we don't know when, but we can have our sails set when he does. We must have our spiritual sails as believers in Jesus Christ set. So if the Holy Spirit, the mighty rushing wind blows again, when the mighty rushing wind blows again, we as people of God are, are ready for that to happen. And so last Sunday we settled down in Acts 1 and 2. And I shared with you, this is really, this is the outline we looked at. This is the, uh, the, the statement we worked through. I said to you that, that true revival, we, again, we don't know if it will come. I'm not here to say when it will come, but we know from the scriptures that it only can come when those who truly know Jesus Christ, it starts with the church, are convinced of their weakness apart from Jesus Christ, that Jesus meant it when he said apart from him we can do nothing. And so they passionately and collectively determined to pursue Christ. We talked about prayer, that's the that's the way it happens. And in the process, they insist that all the glory goes to Christ. Revival can't come until those things are underway. Revival cannot come until God is stirring his people and they are responding in that fashion. And that led us last Sunday to this big idea that revival is every believer's business. It's not just my business. It's not just the elders' and the worship team's business. It's your business if you know Jesus Christ. And it is mine as a believer in him as well. And while, as I said a moment ago, I'm still not sure where this study's gonna take us. I don't know how long we're gonna be in it. I have some ideas, but I'm not sure. I am convinced we need to devote more time to it, into digging into the theme of revival so that our sails are set, should God in his grace cause the mighty rushing wind of the Holy Spirit to blow again. And that's why we're here in Psalm 115. Because among many other things that this psalm does address and many other things in this psalm that we could look to, uh, the underlying question we are going to deal with, because it's a question I believe this psalm both addresses and answers, is this. Here's the question that we're dealing with this morning. What, here it is, what are revival-minded people like? Okay, so if you agree with everything I've said so far, that's great. But now we have to decide, okay, if I'm on board with that, if that's what I believe, or at least I'm willing to let God deal with my heart in that way, what is a revival-minded person truly like? By that I mean, what do they value? What do they love? What do they cherish and treasure? What do they awake to? What do they alert for? What are they passionate about? And right up front, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the answer, okay? And then we're just going to spend the rest of our time working through the answer and talking about what it means. Here's the answer. What a revival. Question, what are revival-minded people like? Answer, revival-minded people are all about the glory of God. Revival-minded people... Have one passion above all others, one conviction, one driving ambition above all others, and that is the glory of God. Why do I say that? Because that's what Psalm 115 says. And in the time we have left, I want to show you three or four things about it that bring that reality to the surface. And hopefully, not I, but God will use to impress upon our hearts. There are just a few things here in this passage, this psalm this morning I want you to see, the first of which is this, number one. I want you to see what it says when it talks in verse one about the glory God deserves. Just talk for a couple of minutes first about the glory that God deserves. Because again, if you look at your Bible, here's how the psalm begins. I want you to look at verse one. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, Give glory. There's a lot of ways to come at that statement. There's a lot encompassed within the the confines of that statement. But as far as I'm concerned, at least for our purposes this morning, the most compelling thing about it, the most fascinating thing about it is it's absolutely unqualified, unconditional, no strings attached nature. It does not say, look again at your Bible, and, and you'll see I'm not making this up. This really is true. It does not say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, be, uh, to be the glor- but to your name, give the glory, so long as the sun is shining. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give the glory, long as there's some money in the bank. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, be the glory, as long as everyone's happy, healthy, and getting along. That's not what it says. Nor does it say, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give much of the glory. (laughs) Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give most of the glory. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but but to your name we'll give the glory that we clearly can't take credit for ourselves. (laughs) It doesn't say that. It says, not to us, O Lord, not to us. Here's what it's saying. But to your name be all the glory. All the time in every situation from every person all of it belongs to you and all of it must go to you and to you alone well where's the psalmist get that the psalmist gets it from isaiah 42:8 or at least it is affirmed by the psalmist in isaiah 42:8 because in isaiah 42:8 god himself says this he says i am the lord there is no other I that is my name and and I will not give my glory to another. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not. He could easily say I cannot give or share my glory with another. My point is simply this revival-minded people get that. They may not understand it completely. I certainly don't understand it completely. We may not understand or grasp what it means or how to put it into action or how it touches each and every point of our lives, but they begin with this conviction. We don't end with this conviction. We begin with this conviction that whatever else is right and whatever else is wrong, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name goes all the glory because you deserve it. It is yours and yours alone. Revival-minded people are in full agreement with Psalm 115's opening stanza, and they are determined to see that he gets it. They're determined to see that he gets it. And the rest of verse 1 tells us why. It's the second thing I want you to see. First of all, we see the glory God deserves. He deserves all of it all the time from everyone for everything in every situation. That's just the first half of the first verse, all right? The second half of the first verse tells us, here's the second thing I want you to see, the reasons he is worthy. Let's talk for just a couple of minutes next about the reasons that God is worthy of all the glory we can possibly give him. Now for a moment, I'll just tell you, uh, this week as I was digging through the passage, I thought, you know, how, how do we really convey this? I mean, this is such a massive truth. Uh, of all the massive truths of the Bible, this is right there at the top among the biggest and, and most hardest, to, uh, most difficult to, to, to summarize, to communicate, to express. And I thought, well, what's the best way to do that? And one thought that occurred to me is I thought, well, let me do a quick survey of the scriptures and just see if I can come up with a list of all of God's, or at least most of God's attributes, of many of his names, and, and, and what it says about him, and how great he is, and how wonderful he is, and how mighty he is. And, and I'll just sort of Lay all that out for you and for me, and we'll just sort of let the combined weight of them together impress us with, yeah, he's a really big God, and he's worthy of our glory. But let me just see how much I can come up with for us to to absorb in a few moments together. Thought about that a little bit. Thought about doing that for a little while. But then I read verse 1 again, and I realized that if two attributes are good enough for the psalmist, two attributes are good enough for me. Because this is what it says. Look again at your Bible. It says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Psalms just says two things, and frankly, of all the attributes of God you could zero in on, I think these are probably the two best to go with. If you could only say two reasons, if you could only give two biblical reasons why God is deserving of all the glory we could give him, this would be the way to go. Let's just look at it together. And it's not that one comes first and the other is second. These are on equal footing. But let's look at briefly both of them. First of all, he says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because, number one, of your loving Kindness. Now, the, the Hebrew term, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I don't pretend to be, and, and, I, and I probably never will be. However, I do know this much, that the term here in Hebrew, the original term for loving kindness is a rich and complex, it's a multifaceted term. We see it most often in the Old Testament as loving kindness. Sometimes you'll, you'll, people will define it when they want to give a definition, The very simple definition of, of God's loyal love. But that's really not doing the term justice. Because if you survey through the Old Testament scriptures, you begin to find that this same term, the Hebrew term is hesed, it's not just most often translated loving kindness, but in other passages you find it translated as mercy as kindness, as love, as, as as goodness. And one of the things that uh, the scholars seem to indicate is, is quite often when that word is found in the Old Testament, it's not just there objectively and on its own, but it is presented uh, in, in an attitude or in a mood of zeal or of passion. That God is a passionate toward us in his loving kindness, that God is zealous toward us in his gentleness and his mercy and his grace and his love. And the psalmist says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because that's the way you are and that's the way you deal with us. It's a massive term and concept. It's the same term used in Psalm 36. Maybe you've heard these words or a variation of them. Your love, your loyal love, your chesed, O Lord, it reaches to the heavens. It stretches across the sky. It's like the mighty mountains. It is like the rushing river. The the psalmist David there in Psalm 36, he's just grasping for, how can I define the loyal, faithful, merciful, gracious, gentle, mighty love of God in a way that we might get it? And even there, you see, the book of Psalms is not sufficient to express God's great love for us. But this is one of the things he says. He says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness. Second thing he says there is, again, an equal measure because of your truth. Looked up truth. Guess what it means? Truth. (laughs) Not a complex, complicated word. Very simple. Very, very clear. However, when it is used, oftentimes when it is used in this context and in others, when it appears in the Scriptures, this word, this term truth it's not just talking about truth like a hammer that smashes out all falsehood. It's just, I'm right, you're wrong, deal with it. But that it's a term that encompasses themes of faithfulness and stability, reliability. This is reliable truth. This is unchanging truth. This is personal, powerful, intimate, faithful truth. In other words, the point here is we have a God who can be trusted because he is true not to us oh lord look again at verse one not to us but to your name give glory because of your love and kindness and because of your truth and as i thought about that and maybe this thought has occurred to you already as well those are the same two very things used to describe jesus when he's introduced to us in john chapter one in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and the word jesus christ became flesh right And dwelt among us. And we beheld his, what's the word? We beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. See how the Bible works? You see how our God works? This is how he presents himself in the Old Testament. And then this is how he introduces himself in the New Testament. By the way, if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, it's the same way he tells us to deal with one another. He tells me to speak the truth and love to you. And he tells you to speak the truth and love to me. Truth and love, they always go together. When you're dealing with our God. That's why I'm saying, I think two attributes right here is enough for us to agree when the psalmist says, whoever this psalmist is, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give the glory, because you are full of grace and truth, and both in infinite, abundant measure. Honestly, what more could you ask for? What else do you want? You're being told, I am being told, that the almighty, infinite creator God of the universe loves you with an everlasting love, and He will always be faithful to you. Really. What else do you want to know? Everything else is details. Everything else is bonus and comes with it. What I'm trying to say and what God is impressing upon me and I simply want to deliver to you is that makes Him more than worthy of all the glory we can give Him. Makes Him more than worthy of us figuring out in each and every aspect of our lives, individually and together as as a church, as brothers and sisters in christ how can we magnify him more what does this psalm talk to us about it talks to us about the glory that god deserves the glory that he is worthy of that we should give to him it then gives us in the rest of verse one secondly the reasons that he is worthy of it and then you know what the rest of this psalm does and by the way, don't assume that as long as it's taking me to get through verse 1, it's going to take me equally long to get through the other 17 verses. That's bad math, okay? promise. But you know what the rest of this psalm does? It's the third thing, and this is where we're, what we're really driving at in view of these first two this morning. It's simply the ways that we can glorify him. See, all right, you tell me this is what he deserves. All right, now we know why he deserves it. What in the world? And this should always be our question, so what? What should I do with it? If I am or desire to be, particularly this morning, a revival-minded person, how do we glorify Him? Let me ask you what's going to sound like a silly question, but hopefully it'll make a clear point. How many of you have a TV in your home that has a feature on it known as picture-in-picture. Anybody know what I'm talking about when I talk about the picture-in-picture feature? I don't even know if they make TVs like that anymore. They did for a while, and and if so, you know what I'm talking about. And I remember when when I was a kid, I was about 14 or 15, we got a new TV. We'd been watching like a 19-inch black and white for a couple of years. That's all we had. But then we got a new TV, a great big one, and it had this feature I'd never heard of before called picture-in-picture. And it means what it means. You know what I'm talking about. Well, you can watch one thing on the big screen. Down in the corner, there can be another little screen, and you can watch another channel, presumably at the same time. You can watch two things at once, because we're all so good at doing two things at once. But it's there. <laughs> and, man, we saw that, and that was we turned the TV on, we plugged it in, we hooked it up, and that was the first thing my brother and I began to play with. Picture, this is great. We can watch Two football games at the same time. And we can take that little picture, and we can move it from the bottom left-hand corner to the top right-hand corner. And then we can move it over here. And we played with that. And it was really, really cool. For like five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and then we shut it off. And we literally, almost literally never turned it on again. Because here's the, here's the plain fact. You can't do two things at once. You cannot give your full attention to two things at once. As much as I might like both games, I, I cannot pay Total, absolute attention to both of them at the same time. It's a cute little tool. It's not very practical. And I say that to you because there's a sense in which the rest of Psalm 115 says the same thing about glorifying our God. That it really is an all or nothing proposition. And, and in the particulars I'm about to spell out for you, that is the common thread between the three things we're about to see. They are absolute statements they are unqualified statements they aren't partial halfway most of the way they demand everything and there are at least in the rest of this psalm three ways we are shown we can glorify god the first of which is this is in verses two through eight where we are called if we are serious about glorifying the lord because we desire to be revival-minded people we must number one repent of every idol in our lives The psalmist calls upon us at God's direction to repent of every idol. Now, as Christians living in America in the 21st century, when I say the word idol, you probably first think of something along the lines of this. If we just throw this picture up there, we think of of an idol, an idol. A material object made of wood or bronze or gold or or stone, and, and when we think of idolatry and idol worshiping, that's what we think of. And, and as Christians, we look at that, especially if we've been around the Lord and His Word for a while, and, and we all sort of agree, maybe we giggle a little bit about how ridiculous it is to think that something like that is going to hear and answer your prayers, that it's going to provide for your needs, it's going to protect you from harm, that it's going to heal you when you are sick or something else is wrong. We agree with the psalmist in that vein when he says, beginning in verse 4, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths but can't hear, eyes but can't see. uh, They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, noses but can't smell, hands but can't feel, feet but can't walk. Can't even make a sound with their throat. We go, yeah, right on. And we think about it long enough, and we follow that thought through, we begin to pity those who have fallen into that trap, because we agree with verse eight, when it says, "Those who make them will become like them." Because they're putting their hope in the wrong place. Why? Why do we think that? Because we're arrogant? No? Because we understand through the revelation of God's word that verse three is true when it says that our God is in the heaven. Heavens. We can't see him, but you know what? He does whatever he pleases. And he does listen, and he has spoken. And he has offered us redemption and everything that goes with it. But let me tell you something, and you've heard this before, and you know it's true, but we all need to hear it again, me included. An idol doesn't have to be made of wood or stone to have allegiance and to have a foothold in your life. It doesn't have to be something you can hold in your hands and put on a shelf. An idol, listen, is anything that anyone Trusts in any way other than God for their needs or with their heart or with whatever. And quite frankly, the principle of verse 8 applies there too. That those who make them, worship them, trust them will become like them. I mean, think about it. If you find your security in your savings account, you're about as stable as the stock market. Your emotions, your security... If you're, your fulfillment in life, if the place you find fulfillment is your children and your grandchildren, God bless us for giving us children, grandchildren as the case may be. But if that's where you're looking for fulfillment, if that's where you're looking for hope, you're destined to be disappointed because they are not perfect and they cannot satisfy your needs. And that day when they can't come through and do what you want and be where you want to be and they don't behave the way you want to behave, if that's where your hope is, hey man, those who put their hope, they're going to become like up and down and in and out and twisted in knots and I can't. I can love them with all my heart, but I can't put my hope there. I can't make an idol out of them. Listen, this is sensitive, so I want to say this sensitively. But if your self-worth is tied to what you see in a mirror or on a scale, listen, there's going to be an ache in your heart that with each birthday, each year is only going to grow deeper and more painful. If your hope is in what happens on November 8th, well, we talked about that last week. But listen, listen, It's not the place, don't make an idol out of it. That this is the answer, or this is where it's going, or this is what's going to happen, in any of those realms, or any other. Because listen, none of those things that I just mentioned, and things like that can be set on a shelf. You can't put them on a prayer rug, bow down before them, and pour out your requests, and your needs, and your heart to them. But if your trust is in them in any way, they are to that same degree an idol. An idol. An idol. One of the greats, I can't remember which one it was at the moment, said the human heart is an idol-making factory. And it is, apart from God. And and my point is the only choice revival-minded people have when it comes to idols is to do one thing of them, and that is to repent. To repent. To forsake them. As the Holy Spirit brings them to our attention. See, because here's what revival-minded people know. Please hear this and remember it. Revival minded people know there's room for only one throne in their heart, and that there is only one person worthy of being seated upon that throne, and that person is Jesus Christ. Revival minded people operate with that conviction one throne, one king, no other comes even close. And so they seek, again, as God brings it to our attention, to number one, repent of every idol, and then number two, the corresponding move that goes with it and flows from it. That verses 9 to 15 spell out for us is that revival-minded people glorify God by having repented of every idol, repenting them as God brings them to our attention, is to then secondly, we place all of our confidence in him. All is the operative word. Place all, all of our confidence in him. Let me ask you something. Have you ever noticed, if you've been a believer in Jesus Christ very long, that when God wants to teach you something, he doesn't stop drilling till he strikes oil? If you haven't figured that out yet, (laughs) just wait. (laughs) He will. He just keeps working and working and digging and processing until he roots out what he wants out and he puts in what he wants in. And sometimes it happens in a moment and sometimes it takes a decade, but God does what he is going to do. And, and for some of us, that's a frightening thought. I don't really want him to do that. I don't really want him to go there. But let me tell you something. In a roundabout way, that's a really rich and beautiful truth because it's a reminder that, of what a personal God he is, that he cares enough about you to deal personally with you, that he cares enough about me to deal personally and powerfully and persistently with me. It's a reminder that as his child, you are a sacred, unique, deeply treasured person to him. And that's why he deals with you, because he loves you so much. He is a personal God. And and one of the things, he may want to do one thing in your life and a different thing in mine. Certainly he does. He deals with all of us in different ways. But the one thing that I know he wants from all of us most is our trust. And I don't just mean our salvation trust. I pray to prayer, raise my hand, walk the aisle, I'm in. All right? I trusted Jesus for salvation. Good, that's the first step. It's the most important one. But what he wants is our trust with all the rest of our life, our confidence. He wants us to learn to place the various things and, and things we value and treasure and, and are responsible for in our lives to him as well. He wants us to place all of our confidence in him. And, and, and there's a way in which, verses 9 through 11, look at your Bible, spell that out. Starts in verse 9. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He's your help and your shield. That's all God's people all together. And that's a really great truth, but it's sort of easy to get lost in the shuffle. So then he says next in verse ten, 10, O house of Aaron, that's a reference to Aaron was the first high priest of the priesthood of the spiritual shepherds. Hey gang, you, spiritual leaders, you better trust in the Lord because he's your help and your shield. And by the way, you're responsible for the spiritual welfare of other people. You better get your trust there, but he doesn't stop there. You, alright? Everybody take your pointer finger like this. Point at yourself, right? You who fear the Lord trust in the Lord. Now he's talking to you, and he's talking to me, each one of us individually and personally. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord, for he is your help and your shield too. Now he's personal, right? And, and of the three things, those three verses, that's the one that matters most. And so let me ask you a question. Do you trust him? Do you desire to trust him? Do you who fear the Lord, that is you know Christ, and you want to honor him, you want to glorify him? And, and if you don't, or are you willing to search and let God search your heart? Say, Here's where you don't trust me, let's work on that. Here's where you're struggling to trust me, let's deal with that. Are you serious about placing all your confidence in him? You should be, not because I said so but because, as I said to you last week, revival is every believer's business. Revival is every believer's business, and because of the promise that follows here as well. Look what happens next in verses 12 and 13. He just told Israel, the priesthood, and each man, woman, and child of God's people to trust him. then he says this, verse 12, And the Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us, and now here he goes. He will bless the house of Israel, all the people. He will bless the house of Aaron, the spiritual leaders. And the Lord will bless those who fear him, the small together with the great. Take that old pointer finger again. Who's he going to bless? Does he trust in him? He's going to bless and care and be the help and shield for me. One writer suggests in commenting on these verses that as we read them and as we ponder and meditate on their truth that perhaps, and just follow me on this for a second, but we should envision two angels in heaven gathered about the throne room but looking down on those of us who are hearing and responding to these words and walking through tough stuff. Your marriage isn't going well. There's not money in the bank. There's there's problems on one side or another. And in heaven's throne room, looking down on your situation, one angel turns to another and says, They have nothing to fear, of course. After all, he's their help and their shield. That's true of you today if you know Jesus Christ. You have nothing to fear, you have nothing to worry about. Stop trying to fix it, stop trying to scheme your way around it, stop trying to manipulate. Why? Because he's your help and your shield. You have nothing to fear, of course. He's not rattled about it. (laughs) You getting rattled about it isn't going to make it any better. Or me? He's talking about our confidence. He's talking about our trust. And so in the same way we must repent of the particular idols in our lives, if we're revival-minded, if we want our sails set, we must also confess the particular situations where all our confidence isn't quite in him yet. And then here's the third and final thing, and we'll try to pull it all together with this. The third and final thing this psalm tells us to do if we are serious about glorifying God, the way we can go about doing it is to make praise our first priority. Make praise, make worship, make the pursuit of God's glory our first priority. Pick it up in verse 16. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he's given to the sons of men. That's a Genesis principle, right? Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. For my glory was God's intention. The dead don't praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But as for us, we will bless the Lord. From this time forth and forever, praise the Lord. In other words, as long as we're here and we still have the chance, we're making praise our first priority. We are making the worship and the glorification of God first. And I think, and here's where we're going to kind of settle on this this morning, and I believe with all my heart the fact that this verse, like the rest of the psalm, is written in the plural matters. As for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. You know why I think that matters here? Listen, here's one of these things. If I could ask you to write it down, I want you to write it down. Because revival-minded people become revival-ready churches. And revival-ready churches, one of the singular defining marks is unity. God will not revive a fractured church He will deal with a fractured church. He will call a fractured church to repentance, a divided church in any way. But he can't revive a divided church. He must heal, and then that rushing wind, if it's going to blow, can. Look again at verse 18. It it doesn't say, but as for me, I will bless the Lord on my terms, with my songs, with the, the lyrics and the instruments I prefer, And I'll draw my little circle over here, and you can draw your little circle over there, and we'll all glorify God in the same place, but we certainly won't do it together. It's not what he says. I'll do it in my approved way, because I don't approve of yours. Listen, I'm not, let me just be clear. I am not here, nor am I interested, now or ever, in fighting worship wars. I think they're ridiculous, and I think they need to stop. However, And I I have zero interest in going down that road. But I am here to plead the case that if we truly want revival, we must make praise of him our first priority. And as this psalm shows from start to finish, and frankly, the other 149 psalms show it too, we're supposed to be doing it together. And listen, I don't know where this strikes you. You may say, this is not relevant to me. You may say, this is very relevant to me. I don't know, God just told me to say it. So I'm going to say it. This is an area which all of us must guard and ask God to search our hearts. Let me tell you something about the conference from a couple of weeks ago that I intend and I have determined I'm going to remember the rest of my life. It may not seem like a big deal to you, but it was a revolutionary moment for me. Simple but revolutionary. You know, as you might imagine, at a conference focused on renewal and revival, we did a lot of worshiping and song. We did a lot of praying, more praying than I've ever done at a conference before, and it was fantastic. And we heard a lot of preaching, but we did a lot of singing. And I'll tell you, the music was loud, the worship team was young, and I, I think maybe in two and a half days, we did one, maybe two of what some of us might consider the old classics, all right? We might have got Amazing Grace in there somewhere, and that's about it. Beyond that, I don't know that there was a song composed prior to about 1995 that we did there. Some of them I liked more than others. Some of I could could sing along with more easily than others. Most of them were rich in content. A few were quite repetitive. So what? They were focused on Christ. They were calling me to him. They were calling us to him. And as I looked across the sanctuary that morning, I saw 500 men and women. 500 men and women of various races and nationalities Men and women alike, young and old, singing out passionately to Jesus Christ, whether they knew the songs well or not. Here's something else I noticed. Take this, it's free, but for what it's worth. Most of them had white hair. Or none at all. We fell somewhere in the middle, age-wise. Listen, I'm not trying to bang an old drum, and I'm not trying to beat on anybody's heart. But something very interesting, and here's what happened that I thought was so fascinating... We, there was a couple we spent the week with. They're 65, 70 years old. We just got to know. Them. We had a wonderful time just learning from them. And they sat next to us in most of the sessions. And about the fourth session in, the wife turned to my wife. Her name was Beth. My wife is Beth. She said, "I sure hope they sing something I know tonight." <laughs> and she said it with an edge of in her voice. Then the service started. We began to worship, and her hands were in the air. She didn't know any of the songs. Tears were on her cheeks. So that's what I want, but that's not why I'm here. I'm here to make Jesus my first priority. I'm here to make worship my first priority. In fact, that's the thing that one of the things that struck me most as I looked around this gathering of people crying out to revival. I saw men and women 10, 20, 30 years down the road, farther than I am. And their passion, not only had it not waned, it was burning brighter than ever before. I want that. I want that for you. I want that for us. And for a few sweet moments together, we got a taste of what revival's like. And guys, I want you to taste it too. But it's we and it's our and it's us before Christ. It's not me and my and mine versus yours. Whether it's how we worship, how we pray, how we study God's Word. I'm I'm picking on one thing because it's the one thing we can all identify with. I'm not trying to pick on that one alone. But the psalmist is calling us to determine with one heart and mind, as for us, we will bless the Lord. From this time forth and forever, praise the Lord. Because the big idea this morning, I already, actually already gave it to you, gave it to you right at the beginning, you just didn't know it, is that revival-minded people are passionate about one thing above all others, and that's the glory of God. Revival-minded people are passionate for God's glory, passionate for God's glory. And I will plead with you this morning, as I did last Sunday, even if you don't like what you're hearing me say, please know my heart and my desire for us to be a place where our sails are set. Let's walk the path together. Let's pursue Christ together. Let's get passionate about God's glory together. It's not about how loud we sing, which songs we sing but it is about us coming together as brothers and sisters. He said the small together with the great for the Lord and pursuing him with everything we've got. As we go to prayer, I just want you to bow your heads for a moment. The team can come back up and we're going to close with a song of worship that I really believe by God's design is appropriate for us this morning. But as they come up and get set, I I want you and I want me because we have a moment or two Just in your heart grapple with the question not do I like or not like am I pleased or offended by what's been said if I have offended unnecessarily apart from the gospel no I apologize. However if God has dealt with your heart there's an idol to lay down there's a a trust that has been misplaced there's a a preference that's become a dividing point. I think God just wants us to deal with that stuff this morning, all of it. And sometimes the only, the best way, the simple way to deal with it is go, Lord, I'm sorry, here it is, help. That's a really good prayer. It doesn't have to be flowery, it doesn't have to be King James English. In fact, it probably shouldn't be, just your heart to God's. Lord, I want to be a man. Father, I want to be a woman, a young person who's passionate for your glory. Who, who, though I have my preferences, opinions, ideas, and longings, I want to be in agreement with you and with my brothers and sisters that we will be about the glory of God. That we will celebrate, that we will rejoice in your loving kindness. Just take a moment again, silently. Just lay it before him. Here it is, Lord, help. If that's not how God's dealing with your heart this morning, then just tell him that you love him. Oh God, we love you. We love being loved by you. We don't understand it. We know we don't deserve it. Father, we know we're unfaithful. (laughs) Not just daily, but hourly. And that you continue to pursue us with passionate, loyal love, with merciful, faithful truth. Lord, to who else are we going to go? Why else would we go somewhere else? Oh God, we don't know when the mighty rushing wind might blow again. We are pleading with you that it will be soon and that it will be here. Lord, I can't escape the thought that perhaps the reason it hasn't is that we really aren't ready. I'm not ready not like we think we are. Oh God, make us ready. Not so we'll live in a more peaceful, civil society, but so that we'll be revived and awakened to worship you like never before, to give you the glory you deserve, and to see others join. Father, keep us near to the cross. Keep us mindful of the empty tomb. Convince us more and more of the reality of your Holy Spirit living within us that that's where the hope of the world is found. That's where joy and contentment will always be found from this time forth and forever, praise the Lord. Father, take the things of truth, of hope this morning, seal them to our hearts. Take the things of the flesh, let them be forgotten so that we savor today Jesus and him alone. It's his glorious name that we pray, amen.